Ben McGrath has been a staff writer at The New Yorker for nearly 20 years. And in that time, he's written more than 200 stories for the magazine. Stories about everything from the mafia to the Iditarod. And they're good stories. Ben is a nimble, sensitive, pretty funny writer. But most of his pieces are short. Slices of life, brief moments in time. For the last few years, though, Ben has been working on a project of an entirely different magnitude. It's a book, his first, and it's called Riverman. If many of his New Yorker stories are quick snapshots, then this is the whole roll of film. He sets down on the page the life story of a guy named Dick Conant, a guy who may just be the greatest American folk hero you've never heard of. For decades, Dick canoed by himself down thousands of miles of American rivers, the Mississippi, Yellowstone, Ohio, and Hudson. He navigated class four rapids and dodged container ships. He survived brushes with death and got by on the astonishing kindness of strangers, all while exploring some of the most beautiful, wild places this country has to offer. And then, in November 2014, he disappeared. A few months before he fell off the map, Dick was paddling down the Hudson past Piermont, New York, a sleepy river town about 20 miles north of Midtown Manhattan. And while he was passing through, he met someone, someone who'd recently moved to Piermont with his family in an effort to get beyond the city's magnetic pull in the hope that if you live on the water's edge, you might see strange and wondrous things float by. That was Ben McGrath. So let's start there, on the day they met. I'm Caleb Bissinger, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. Chapter One. Santa Claus came out of a canoe. It was Labor Day 2014, and Ben had decided to take his two-year-old son kayaking. Together, they made the short walk from their house to the bank of the Hudson. When we got down to the, to the river, my neighbor, who's a kind of a pretty large guy, just loomed over the stone wall and said, you're going to want to come inside and meet this guy I've got in here. And I, at that point, I noticed that there was a boat that was not my neighbor's tied up to his seawall. And it was a red plastic canoe, a kind of filthy red plastic canoe, overheaped with tarps and, and duffel bags. It belonged, the neighbor said, to this guy he'd met on the water that morning, who claimed to be paddling from Canada to Florida, though now he was inside the neighbor's house taking a breather. So Ben and his son followed their neighbor inside, and there, seated at the dining room table, drinking vodka and snacking on caviar and donuts, was Dick Conant. You know, I've described him as looking like Santa Claus came out of a canoe. I mean, he had a very... <laughs> large man with a kind of jiggling belly laugh, wearing overalls, and his complexion was as sort of red as a boiled lobster. As odd as it may sound, this was exactly the kind of person Ben had always hoped to meet in Piermont. Remember, that's why he'd moved there in the first place. I had this fantasy of moving along the river and it being a kind of a, an imaginative place and so the idea that this character could just sort of drift down the river into our viewscape kind of enlivened my mind. But yeah, so I all of a sudden, I just had this immediate impression of like, here's this person who looks kind of like a, you know, well, hillbilly, 
who has just floated into town and he he doesn't look like someone in this town and, and he's doing something that I don't associate with the 21st century, which is trying to paddle a canoe all the way down the coast. And something you, you didn't associate with the 21st century and that you seemed a little bit dubious of, right? I mean, he describes to you that his plan is to end in Naples, which is, you realize, on the Gulf Coast, not the Atlantic, which means crossing through uh, the intercoastal waterway. You, you seemed, at least this is my take on, on those early pages of the book, like you weren't totally sure that this guy had the wherewithal to make this journey. Am I reading too much into that? No, that's right. I mean, he was clearly aware that what he was describing was jarring to some people and sort of getting a rise out of them. But when he, when he said he was going to Naples, I just had this thought. I was like, well, they, that's on the other side of Florida. And, and if you're going yeah. down the coast, like, are you, like I, in mid my mind, I was thinking, like, are you going to go all the way down around the peninsula? You know, and then, right. uh, and I just sort of thought maybe this guy's full of it. I didn't want to be rude, but I was just a little bit like, I don't know. And he kind of pushed back at me, not rudely, but with a you know, kind of a gesture that's sort of like, do you really want to, you know, challenge me on this? Like, cause I, you know, he sort of his hand, he kind of raised his hand as if to sort of start pointing like, all right, if, like if you're going to, if you're going to force me to do this, I'm going to name like the 113 bodies of water that I'm going to take to get there. And then I was like, all right, all right, never mind. <laughs> so Ben let it drop. Though not because he was entirely convinced by Dick's attempts to wave away his doubts, but because by this point, his two-year-old son was starting to lose patience. Part of my excitement was for the two-year-old's benefit, kind of like, this is your bedtime story, like, this is the coolest thing that's ever going to happen in your life, like a giant from a strange land just drifted into our town. But he was like, you know, tipping chairs over, and I was like, we got to get out of here. But later that night, back at home, Ben couldn't stop thinking about that giant from a strange land. So he started Googling Dick Conant, and he found almost nothing. So we're talking about a 63-year-old man. He was retired, in his own words. And and the, the two things that I could find on that, that first night were, one, an article from a newspaper in Montana about how they had a weather watcher at Montana State University who recorded the weather with a physician's care. It was the word it was used. And the picture of a man, it only showed him from the back, but he was also wearing overalls. And I was like, that seems like the guy. And then the second thing I found was a forum of fishermen in Texas marveling to one another, like, if, if you haven't met this guy, Dick Conant, you better check him out. Like, he's currently paddling through our waterways. He left up near Buffalo in 2000, you know, six months ago, and he's making his way, like, epic adventure. So that, yeah, that put me in mind, like, all right, this was seven years before he'd arrived in my town, and he'd amazed people in Texas. And so I thought, all right, there's something legit here. Now, if I were Ben, this is the part of the story where I'd say, wow, what a character. And then I'd close my laptop and go to bed. But that's not what Ben did. He got in his kayak and went out on the Hudson at night in the dark to look for Dick. Again, I convinced myself that the reason we lived alongside the river was to sort of be awake to the possibilities that a river represented. And this was a chance to prove it to myself. But I want to push you on that a little bit. I mean, say more about that. Is that sort of a latent adventurer spirit in you? Is it journalistic curiosity? Were you worried about this guy's well-being or did he want to confront him and say, I'm sorry I doubted you about going to Naples because I just read what you did in 2008? I wasn't worried about him yet. That will come. But that mm. that wasn't what was happening at this stage. At this stage, it was less self-conscious than that. You know, there was a sense that I had of like, oh, darn, you know, like this kind of story is like a no-brainer of a talk of the town story in the mm. Ben McGrath wheelhouse. Like, mm -hmm. unusual strange man washes up in town on way to Florida. 
And so I did feel like, oh, that was a blown opportunity. But also it was just kind of like on some level that I hadn't quite processed yet, there was something that awakened in me like of like possibility, like, wow, you Mm. can getting off the shore and out into this river, like you can go places. He paddled for half a mile or so. Nothing, no sign. So he turned around, but he wasn't giving up, just regrouping. The next afternoon, Ben grabbed a notebook, tape recorder, and a printout of that forum where Texas fishermen had marveled at the audacity of Dick's past adventures. And then he got in his car and drove through the wooded area that runs south along the Hudson between Piermont and the George Washington Bridge. What I ended up doing was pulling up to a marina, maybe five miles down river from my house. Yeah. And there were some guys smoking in a parking lot at the marina. And I, and I said, just kind of off the cuff, like, have you guys seen a hillbilly in a canoe? And one of them immediately said, oh, you mean the guy going to Florida, like kind of nonchalant. And I was like, all right, <laughs> so obviously you have. But unfortunately, the news, his news was that the guy had come and gone like four hours ago. So then I drove down to another marina and there I, there was a woman on a dock and I tried the same, I was sort of chuffed by that line, the hillbilly and a canoe line. I tried it out again and she looked at me like I was like just obnoxious. Like, what, what are you talking about? So then I just thought, all right, well, she obviously hasn't seen this guy because then otherwise she would think I was charming. So I figured, all right, he's between these two spots and I'm going to start hiking up and try and find him. And I, at this point I was sort of like fighting the clock a little bit because I had to get back to pick up my son at daycare at like 4 p.m., and, you know, maybe it was 2.30 now, and I'm, like, like in my mind thinking, all right, like, how long am I going to really devote to this, like, somewhat ridiculous fool's errand of, like, trying to find a guy who I'm not even sure is all that sane on the river before I have to then hike back. But I walked maybe about a mile fast and kind of sweaty, and then he, there he was. Dick was a sight to see. The lip of his canoe was barely above the water line because it was so weighed down by bags and tarps and gear, not to mention Dick's 200-pound, six-foot-one body. He was dressed in swim trunks, a sweat-stained T-shirt that said New Orleans French Quarter, and a life vest. As Ben would learn, Dick always wore his life vest. Dick saw Ben waving and called out that he was due for a good break. When he reached the shore, he dragged his boat onto the beach, And then he carefully stowed his paddle, knotting the handle to a rope that was attached first to a buoy he'd fashioned out of an empty detergent bottle and then to a cable lock that was affixed to the stern of the canoe. Watching this, Ben thought, this guy does not mess around. His boat safely ashore, his paddle stowed away. Dick opened his cooler. I had been wondering in my mind the whole time, like, well, I wonder what this guy's eating. I envisioned this guy, like, you know, you kind of fantasize about the off the grid, like into the wild style adventure. And I was thinking like, you know, maybe he's fishing Mm. and then like, so he's going to have to stop and like fry up a white perch or something. But he opens up his cooler to get a glass of water, as he called it. It was basically just kind of like semi-translucent melted ice in, in a Gatorade bottle. But And he offered me some. But then while he's doing that, he showed me that actually what he was relying on mostly as a kind of a dietary staple was a jar of kosher franks um, stuffed in pickle juice. Oh, my God. Ben declined Dick's offer to share his melted ice water. Instead, he shared something he'd brought along, the printout from the Fisherman's Forum. Dick had never seen it before, and he was touched that strangers had taken such an interest in him. And then he's like, let me get some of my uh, documentation, I think was the word he used. And then he sort of spread out a tarp and laid down, and he just started opening up some road atlases. This was yet another incongruity, which is that the man 
who was astonishing me by his knowledge of navigating inland waterways all around the United States was using road atlases. Right. But he opened up the road atlases and they're just covered like corner to corner in pretty tidy like block lettered handwriting, which are his notes. Weather observations, journal entries, descriptions of birds he'd seen and people he'd met. Dick flipped to a page that showed the stretch of the Hudson he'd canoed that day, did some quick calculations, and concluded he'd gone about a dozen miles since dawn, a solid day's work, which meant the sandy beach where he and Ben were now sitting was as good a place as any to make camp for the night. As Dick settled in, he started rattling off stories, stories about his childhood. He was an army brat, he said, one of nine siblings, who strangely enough had grown up just a few miles from Piermont. He still had a brother nearby. I was going to call him, he said, but I didn't. Then he told stories about Bozeman, Montana, where he lived when he wasn't on the water. Best of all, he told stories about his adventures, told about the time he'd paddled from New York to Texas and the time he'd canoed the Mississippi from nose to tail. And then he talked about his current journey. He confessed that he was a little worried about what might happen further down when he hit North Carolina. He'd be in a desolate area, he said, far from the intercoastal waterway. But he was ready for it. He traveled with three weeks' worth of rations. Listening to these stories, Ben was in awe. He was also in a hurry. Really, the main thing at that point I realized was I was totally captivated and then also look, looking at the clock and being like, I, don't, I, I can't actually stay here very long. Like I've, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm sorry I've interrupted you on your, on your travels, but actually, now that you've amazed me, I have to leave and go pick up my son. As Ben got up to go, Dick asked if he could keep that printout from the Texas Fisherman's Forum. So Ben handed it over. But before he did, he wrote his name and number on the back, just in case. The next day, Ben went back to Dick's campsite and found the riverman napping, apparently after snacking on cheese and condiments. By this point, Ben had decided to write a short piece about Dick for The New Yorker, and he wanted to know if there was some way to get in touch downriver in case the magazine's notoriously persnickety fact-checkers had any follow-up questions. Dick's reply? Nope. So Ben tried another approach. If he couldn't contact Dick in the future, maybe he could get some basic facts on the record now. He asked, when you go on a trip like this, do you give up your apartment? That's kind of sensitive, Dick replied. One of the reasons I go on these trips is because I don't have an apartment. I'm homeless. He then launched into a monologue about his checkered career, as he called it, the time he'd spent working on the railway, his stint in the Navy. He described the iffy state of his health. He had high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and he took medication for both. Every two weeks, he'd leave the water, find a VA hospital, and stock up on pills. As they spoke, Ben couldn't help but notice Dick's exuberance, which had been so abundant the day before, had faded now replaced by a more melancholic mood. And he could pick up that melancholy in something Dick admitted later that day. These adventures are incredible, he told Ben. They're dangerous and full of excitement. However, at this point in my life, I've had enough of this excitement. I'd much rather be at home with a woman and a family like you have than out here on the water. But this, he said, is the alternative. He was like, look, this is great. Like, I'm doing great stuff. But there was also something a little sad about him. And he was sort of also saying, like, 
but it's okay. Like, trust me, you don't want to be me. I'm just doing the best thing I can do for me. And I, it just seemed to me it was so much wiser than the, the sort of comic book version of this type or the, or the folk hero that gets passed down. Chapter 2. Mental Barnacles As swiftly as he'd entered it, Dick drifted down the river and out of Ben's life. In mid-September, two weeks after their brief encounter, Ben's short piece about Dick ran in The New Yorker under the headline, Southbound. And a few weeks after that, Ben got an email. I just read your article and I was pleased. It was from Dick. He was in Delaware, which meant he traveled 150 miles. Now he was preparing to cross the Chesapeake. He added that he was in good health before signing off, your friend, Dick Conant. Dick continued his adventure. Ben filed a story about a professional video game player. And that was that. Until November 29th, when Ben got a phone call. So yeah, I, I answer the phone and I hear a guy in a bit of a kind of southern drawl say, Ben McGrath, I'm investigating a missing boater. The caller's name was John Beardsley. He said he was a wildlife ranger from North Carolina, and he was trying to track down the owner of a red canoe that had been found floating in the Albemarle Sound not far from the Outer Banks. He explained that among the items he'd recovered from the abandoned boat was a printout from some sort of forum for fishermen in Texas. And on the back, he'd noticed a name, Ben McGrath, written alongside an out-of-state phone number. He was sort of hoping that I was going to say, oh, like, I'm the boater. You must have found my canoe. Can I have it back? But, of course, Ben was not the missing boater. The missing boater was Dick Conant. Though to say he was missing seemed a little bit overdramatic to Ben. What I imagined, actually, I kind of assumed, in fact, that what had happened was some people had found a canoe and didn't realize the kind of character that they were dealing with and kind mm -hmm. of thought, uh-oh, well, where's the person? Whereas I, in my all my wisdom, was able to imagine that, like, oh, well, hey, don't worry. Like, he, it's, it's totally normal for him to spend four days kind of exploring your town and just, you know, maybe he stashed his canoe in the reeds. And so I, I started, I was kind of rambling on the phone to him. And I was like, you know, you should probably check the public library or, like, you know, or is there a dive bar? Like, you know, I think he likes to drink. He likes to tell stories. He's probably, he's probably around. That was my assumption. And, and I was trying to persuade him of that. And then it became clear from his disengagement from my rambling that he had some other ideas in mind and like, he wasn't interested really in hearing that much more about my optimism. It's because what Beardsley knew and Ben didn't was that Dick's canoe hadn't been found stashed in the reeds. It was floating, unanchored, and upside down. Beardsley had since righted the canoe and transported it to a storage shed where he'd inventoried the contents. I mean, one of the main things that sticks in my head is, that is, is just the sheer number of, of toothbrushes, which was 17. And I think there were some cigarette lighters and extension cord and newspapers, you know, wet, sodden newspapers from kind of up and down the eastern seaboard from Trenton and from Catskill, New York. And Beardsley also found road atlases covered in writing, 14 chapsticks, a deck of playing cards, an interview with Paul Krugman clipped from the Princeton alumni magazine, a radio, pens, thumb drives, and a lone copy of The New Yorker. All of this plus a few coolers, water jugs, and camping equipment, had been packed into a 14-foot canoe. There was also a paddle tied to a rope attached to a buoy and locked to the side of the canoe. 
If the contents of Dick's canoe said something about who he was, a planner, a pack rat, they didn't say anything about where he might have gone. So when Ben told Beardsley that he'd met Dick three months earlier and written a story about him, Beardsley figured that was enough of a connection to merit asking Ben for help. He wanted Ben to track down Dick's family under one condition. Under no circumstances was he to contact them himself. After all, this was an active investigation. After we got off the phone, I went back through my notes and I saw the the moment when Dick actually specifically named one of his brothers as the person with whom he was most in touch, and that was his older brother, Joe. And the reason that they were the most in touch, which wasn't that much in touch, to be clear, uh, was because Joe's wife was, I think the word Dick used, was a fuss budget. You know, the kind of person who's, who's great at keeping big families in touch by always writing birthday cards and Christmas cards and keeping the little formalities going. And he, and he specifically told me that Joe lived in Peachtree City, Georgia, and had used to fly for Delta Airlines. So it wasn't that hard for me to, to locate Joe Conant in Peachtree sure. City, Georgia. And what I did was I emailed Officer Beardsley the phone number that I was able to find and then reassured him that I was going to follow his request and not, not go any further. Ben had actually thought about trying to reach Dick's family back when he was writing a short piece for The New Yorker. But what would he have said? You don't know me, but I met your brother on the Hudson River. He was amazing. It seemed kind of complicated. Best not to wade into it, he thought. A decision he now regretted. Maybe I really had messed up. Maybe my my role wasn't to just chronicle his journey, but maybe I had an opportunity to bring his family back into this picture, and I had passed up that opportunity, and now look where we were. It was a bad place. But there was nothing he could do about it. Officer Beardsley had given him strict instructions to leave the Conant family alone. So Ben sat on his hands. Until something happened that caught him completely by surprise. Dick's family got in touch with him. Not Joe from Peachtree City, but two brothers who lived not that far from Piermont. Remember how Dick had told Ben he had family in the area he decided not to contact? Well, now they were contacting Ben to meet for drinks. We had a kind of summit. It was an open question of what had happened. You know, the missing persons investigation continued and there was no clarity about where things stood. They were kind of curious about what it was in their brother that had caused me to care. They were kind of pleased and flattered sort of on its behalf, but also a little bit puzzled. And that, and that was this sort of weird little dance that we had in this initial meeting where they were kind of like tiptoeing up to this idea, like, well, did you really know Dickie? Because that's what they called him, you know, because he, he's not, he's a little bit off. And a little bit off how? What was their, what was their perception of how he was off? The sort of delicate and kind of lovely way that one of them put it, actually quoting Dick himself, they said, he once told their mother that he struggled with mental barnacles. This was his nautical euphemism for paranoia. Wherever he went, he was afraid of overstaying his welcome. Spend too long in one place and he'd start thinking everyone was out to get him. What had caused it? The brothers couldn't say. All they knew was that something had happened to Dick back when he was in his 20s. Whatever it was, it changed their brother. And the worst part for them was that up to that point, he'd been their hero. One of the things that I didn't learn until talking to his brothers that I wouldn't have known from talking to him was that he had been a kind of a, like a superstar 
social figure in their lives and in the lives of their community. I mean, he was the golden boy. Uh, you know, he was super great at sports, great at school, great at art, popular with the girls. He was that kind of person. So, that was interesting to me because obviously I met a person who was living kind of on the margins and the person that they were mm -hmm. describing and kind of lamenting the loss of was a person who was very much at the center of things. I think that's what makes Dick's transformation, as tragic as it was, oddly fascinating. His brothers loved him best when he was the golden boy, and they pitied who he became, a river wanderer. And yet that guy they felt sorry for, the guy who spent so much time alone in a canoe, that's who Ben had been entranced by. Part of the same thing that made them frustrated by and, and sad for him, which was his sort of fundamental elusiveness, mm. was exactly what I thought that I and other people were drawn to, right? Like it's sort of like the, we relish the ability to be elusive, and when we see someone seeming to succeed at it, we think, oh, this is pretty awesome, and it's great to be reminded right. that it's possible. And as I'm sort of talking my way through that with them, I'm also realizing, of course, that this is the the downside of that is like the very predicament we're facing here, which is that here we are sitting at this bar and we have no idea where he is. And the reason we have no idea where he is is that he he was so elusive that he wasn't accountable to anyone and he wasn't reporting to anyone where he intended to go next. And so no one had a had a bead on his on his progress. Although Dick's whereabouts were unknown, one of his brothers had brought along something that might contain a clue. He pulled out a stack of paper, hundreds of pages and slid it across the table to Ben. They were typed manuscripts that Dick had mailed to him over the years. Extensive travelogues that chronicled the ups and downs of his journeys. Maybe they contained some hint about what Dick had done in the past when the going had gotten rough. Maybe this wasn't the first time he'd abandoned his canoe. Sure enough, Ben found a glimmer of hope. It was an extended riff about Dick's decision to call off one of his previous journeys a few hundred miles short of his intended destination. In these pages, he was sort of grappling with what the difference is between a, a man of courage and a damned fool and talking mm. about, you know, how he could be rescued or whether it would be difficult to be rescued and what, you know, what his family would think. These all seemed like the reckonings of a, of a serious person, right? Not a crazy, right. uh, reckless guy. If Dick wasn't reckless, if he wasn't a damned fool, then maybe he hadn't capsized in North Carolina. Maybe he'd just decided, hell with this, and walked away, still wearing his life jacket. It was a comforting thought, and it kept Ben's hope afloat until he got a package. Return address, Peachtree City, Georgia. It was from Joe, another of Dick's brothers, the pilot, the one with the fuss budget for a wife. And inside were the annotated road atlases that had been recovered from Dick's overturned canoe. Picture these things like having been underwater and then recovered and then sun-dried and then kind of like delicately turned over these spiral, they're sort of spiral-bound atlases. And so most of the pages turn, but they're brittle to the touch and there's still kind of grit and sand in between the pages. So you- Amazing. I just felt as I was sort of thumbing through them, this was visceral. This was like all of a sudden now I'm I'm holding something that was at the scene of the accident, or, or right. so it would seem. Reading Dick's margin-to-margin -margin notes, Ben was hit with an unpleasant realization. Why would that man abandon those notes? I think that was why 
holding those maps really hit me harder than than holding the manuscripts did because mm. it was sort of these were the there was something personal about those documents and I just, I couldn't imagine going through the effort of taking those notes if only to sort of cast them aside and say, ah, you know what, I've got better things to do, I'm going somewhere else. Chapter 3, Rescue Effort. In addition to sending the atlases, Joe told Ben about a strange discovery he'd made. It turned out Dick had two storage units, one in Utah and another in Bozeman. And these units weren't new. Dick had been paying rent on them for years, even after he'd become homeless, even after he'd decided to devote his life to spending as much time as possible on the river. One of the realizations that really hit me and, and made me feel like I owed it to him to, to, to complete the story is that, you know, in the Montana uh, locker, at least, you know, Bozeman, Montana is where he lived for lack of a better word. I mean, he, in, some, in some sense, I came to feel that he actually, where he really lived was on the riverbank writ large. In Utah, however, the last time that he had lived, again, in the, in the conventional sense, in Utah was 1994. Wow. And so that's 20 years earlier. And he was continuing to pay rent. Like, you know, 20 years have gone by and he's still paying rent on that locker in Utah from like, you know, Fort Ticonderoga, New York in 2014. He gets out of a canoe, walks to the post office and makes sure to mail a money order to the Giles Brothers storage facility in Heber City, Utah. And that really, really struck, struck with me because it's like, wow, this guy... Whatever else, however scattered his life seems to be and however kind of itinerant or whatever, he is trying to hold on to stuff for a reason. Like yeah. 20 years, he's still paying rent on that place that he left two decades ago. And that was heavy for me, for sure. So the first thing Joe did when he found out about these units was pay the rent forward. His brother had kept up payments on these units for 20 years. Clearly, whatever was inside really mattered to him. And if he was still out there somewhere, he wouldn't want those units to slip away. The next thing Joe did was decide he was going to go see what was inside. Maybe he'd find a clue, something that might explain what had happened to Dickie. And when Ben heard about this plan, he invited himself along. In the book, you describe that decision to go along to the opening of these storage units. And you say you, you felt implicated. And I was really struck by that word choice, right? It's not that you felt curious or you felt obligated there's like this degree of responsibility of culpability and maybe this was i don't know maybe you just that day you were writing and you happened to type down implicated and it felt good in that sentence and you left it there but i wonder if there's something deeper well no i mean implicated definitely is the right word uh if they hadn't found that paper with my name on it given what i now know about how estranged he was from his family this guy would have just vanished from the earth, potentially, depending on where he was. Mm. Right? You know, no one would have known. He just, he just would have kind of floated off into the ether. And so then I felt, I did kind of feel called. But as the word spread online among his old acquaintances that he was missing, I also heard from another uh, old sort of neighbor, I guess a high school contemporary. I think what he said was, you know, Dickie Conan didn't need an article in the New Yorker, he needed an intervention. Hmm. Um, and it did kind of sting me a little bit in the kind of sense of like, you're part of the problem. And so, I, 
I did kind of feel like, well, if to the extent that that might be true, then the rescue effort in whatever, however you want to term that, whether that's a physical rescue or a, or a narrative rescue, that rescue effort does kind of fall a little bit on me. So Ben flew to Montana and met Joe at the outskirts of town and Osterman's mini warehouses. Though there's actually nothing that many about them. I've looked at this on Google Maps and it's quite a big facility. Anyway, they found Dick's unit, number 792. Joe used a bolt cutter and bam. You can picture kind of one of those rectangular storage crates and the boxes are kind of stacked teetering style, basically to the ceiling. On the very top of that pile is a one of those large foam hats that says Guinness on it, like a party <laughs> hat, like a like a costume party hat. And the boxes, I mean, the the paperwork, it did require a fair amount of sifting through because you know this was a, it was clear that we're dealing with a person who saves you know kind of a bit of a pack rat right like there's not a whole lot of discrimination in what's worth saving there were like mcdonald's breakfast coupons and credit card solicitations that hadn't even been opened in addition to just like folders of maps that were actually pretty well documented sort of you know mississippi river mile 801 to 850 in a, in a folder and then inside there are these maps annotated with his travels mm-hmm. and one of the kind of poignant things was there was a lot of mail, just sort of bags and bags of mail. And that mail included all the birthday cards and Christmas cards that Joe and his wife mm-hmm. had sent. The annual letters that Dickie himself had told me was the thing that kind of kept their family, their disparate family glued together. He did, in fact, have them. And Joe, with a sigh, kind of said, well, at least he, I'm glad to know that he received them. Maybe the most touching thing Ben found in Dick's storage unit was a receipt from Hooters. On the back, someone named Heather, maybe a waitress, wrote a poem. You're in the hearts and in the minds of the ones you left behind. May your journey be without worry and your future filled with happiness. You are a hero in the utmost respect. One of the things I love about that poem, you know, it's, it's the, the way she spelled it was the utmost. Right. Uh, not the utmost, but the utmost. And yet it's, and your, it's just she's a... Got- it's a you're the wrong your and the wrong your exactly so it's it's it, and it's so it's it's great because it's such a real document right it's like it's yeah. the back of a hooters receipt it's poetry and hooters and it's like you know heartfelt sentiment and bad grammar it's just like it's so it's just all those contradictions are kind of what i love in it sort of distilled right there about the whole dick conant story and what was that story when he first met dick Ben thought it was about escapism, adventure, wonder, nature. But he came to realize that wasn't it at all. The real Dick Conant story is about friendship. Everywhere Dick went, he made friends. Whether it was Ben the New Yorker writer or Heather the Hooters poet, he had this rare ability to draw people to him, to connect, to garner trust and admiration and affection. As one of Dick's many friends later described it to Ben, Dick dropped memories all over the place. We could all be so lucky. This was a guy who had actually grown up surrounded by love and friends. And then things didn't go the way he imagined they would in his young adulthood. And this happens to lots of people. And what he did in a very unusual and remarkable way was he found a way to reinvent himself in his middle age and become great at making friends again. Now, the way in which he differed from many people who are good at friendship is that he he had a hard time maintaining those friendships because of his paranoia and because he was kind of rootless and kept on moving. 
But the thing that was consistent throughout, he just always made friends. And it was the friends, I think, more than the beauty that sustained him. The variety of these friends, too. You know, like he goes to Princeton and he befriends, you know, a Princeton alum who you, I think, refer to as like a financial heavy in a, in a bar in town there. And then he goes to Camden and he befriends a completely different kind of person on the streets of Camden. He, he He's not, you know, he just... All, people from all sorts of walks of life are drawn to him, and he gives out that fellow feeling to all sorts of people. I, I think it's beautiful. I was trying to think about what was different about him being in a boat as opposed to being like a railroad tramp or a through hiker kind of person. And I think part of it is that the doing it on a boat was unusual enough and sort of exotic enough and ingenious enough that it expanded his social universe. I think like if a kind of a hobo kind of tramps through your town, in that town, there might be a certain slice of people who are always going to befriend that person who feel a kinship with wandering souls. Dick Conant comes through and his friends are like, they're lawyers and they're the unhoused. They are Uh professors and they're anarchists and they're like super conservative military people. They're just... It could be anyone. Right. His friends are kind of, they're, they really are, they range extremely widely. And that was kind of thrilling vicariously to, to walk through. Ben left the storage unit committed to writing something about Dick. Something long, something that would do justice to the man. Something Dickie would be honored to read if he was still out there. He started cold calling people whose names he'd found in Dick's manuscripts and journals. He'd ask something like, Do you remember meeting a guy named Dick Conant, big fella, always wore overalls, lived in a canoe? And invariably, he'd get the same answer. Are you kidding me? We were just talking about that guy on Thursday. And some of those people, they had met him like 15, 20 years earlier. It was beginning to seem like Ben had all the trappings of a great book. He had in Dick Conant a larger-than-life character. He had a theme, friendship. He had an epic adventure storyline. He was just missing two things. First, he needed to understand Dick's tragic flaw. What had happened to him back in his youth? Why had he gotten off the golden boy path and ended up on the river? Ben needed to answer that. He also needed an ending. Chapter 4. Dickie. Describe sort of his youth and young manhood. You know, he's this incredibly bright, precocious, popular guy... Uh, He gets a scholarship to SUNY Albany. He's on the soccer team. He just feels like homecoming king. And then there's a little bit of a, I think you say there's a crack up. What happens? So this is the period in his sort of college years when everyone can kind of point as like the time period when things started to go amiss. For one thing, he did a lot of partying and he started drinking an awful lot. He started doing drugs some of it was uh, involuntary. So this is one of the one of those things where I think when his brothers, they first, in our, our first meeting, they kind of looked at each other and, and kind of made some passing reference to someone slipping him a Mickey. And I later learned from, from some other friends that actually there was a, almost a game that was made uh, among a certain crew of people of dosing his beer or his milkshakes with acid. Not, I don't think, I, the impression I get was it was not intended to be hostile. It was more that, mm. like, 
Dickie was such a spontaneous, charismatic figure that he'd be even more entertaining if he were like sent out on a journey for public view. But it, clearly some of these people had had real guilt about it in retrospect, kind of wondering if they'd traumatized him. You know, certainly it's never happened to me that I know of, but I, you can imagine how jarring it would be to have your yeah. brain all of a sudden betraying you uh, and you're not understanding why. Terrifying. Uh, I mean, it would make you paranoid. It could make you paranoid. And so, you know, actually one of the things that, that felt kind of rhyming and poignant about his story as it went on is uh, as he's sort of flailing through his young adulthood, one of the things he does, you know, he goes and he tries to get, uh, he works in the hospital and tries to get into medical school and that doesn't work. And he, he goes out to Wyoming and sort of chases the energy boom and works in uh, on an oil rig and in a, in a coal mine and then on the railroad and, and none of those really quite stick. And then he, and he decides to go into the Navy and this turns out to have been a very smart thing for him to do because of the healthcare benefits that this gives him in later mm -hmm. life. But when he's in the Navy, he runs into problems on the ship uh, with sort of sleeplessness and that feeds his paranoia. And one of the ways that the paranoia manifests is that he becomes convinced that his, his shipmates are slipping amphetamines into his mm -hmm. food. Now, this is a kind of a common trope within paranoid case studies, but there's something specific in, in his biography that, that sticks here, which is like, he's someone to whom this act has actually happened, right? right. It's, so it's not as out there as it might seem, because like, well, you know, you might be like, oh, come on, nobody's doing that to you. It's like, well, okay, but they literally did that to you a lot <laughs> when you were younger. It's interesting, you describe, I think you said this flailing, and there is this disconnect in Dick between his ambition and his achievement or his execution, right? I mean, he... You know, he aspires to go to med school, but it doesn't work out. He aspires to ride the energy boom in Wyoming, and I think he ends up working in a train yard. And he struggles with the fact that he is this ambitious guy, and he's sort of held down by this blue-collar mentality or this blue-collar reality. Is, is that tension accurate? Yeah, so it's not just ambition so much as, I think, living up to expectations. Um, mm. his, his father was an army colonel, and a kind of a difficult personality in, in a number of ways, but his children revered him and really were, certainly in Dickie's case, were desperate to sort of live up to his expectations. And because Dickie had been such a promising high school student, he did feel that great things were expected of him. And by great things, I mean something more than, than just eking out a kind of a middle-class life you know mm. he, he had grown up you know he was a baby boomer in a military family like he had a sense of a real sense of historical destiny um seriously patriotic guy who because he'd had a sort of a charmed childhood in some respects he really did kind of expect that he like many people in his generation that the world was just going to open up for him and 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 he thought that he should <laughs> be one of its leaders he didn't imagine himself just being a functionary he imagined himself being a, a charismatic figure a successful figure in the in whichever way you may define that and so he kind of I, the sense in which I, it seemed to me like flailing was he you know sort of like well one way to be a success is to be a doctor right one way to be a success is to be a lawyer one way to be a success is to be like in management like those were different ways he was sort of grasping at trying to have the outside world recognize that he had done right by his talents and then as he goes on and on he's increasingly not doing 
right by his talents in, again, in the conventional sense. And he really never succeeds in doing right by his talents, in my estimation, until he reinvents himself as a river wanderer, at which point he actually becomes kind of one of the most prolific and memorable characters in a admittedly narrow genre that, that we've ever known. What provoked that reinvention? It may have been a DUI. In the fall of 92, Dick applied for the second time to medical school. He was 41 years old, so he knew it was a long shot. But he did his best to explain in his application why med school was a logical waypoint in his roundabout journey through life. In the Navy, he wrote, I sailed to the far corners of the world and met many good people. And wasn't practicing medicine similar? Wasn't being a doctor a little bit like being a navigator? At least, and I'm quoting here, in the sense that success depends upon truthful information. Facts, good judgment, and deliberate action yield good results. The admissions committee didn't see it that way. They turned him down. Crushed, rejected, confronted with yet another failure. He spiraled, started drinking, and that's when he got a DUI that changed his life forever. Yeah, so he can't drive for six months. And so he one of the things he does to sort of fill time for himself is he builds this boat. Ben says it looked like an angular torpedo. Dick thought it was a masterpiece. I keep picturing one of those hollowed-out logs you ride in an amusement park log foam. Despite its odd looks, though, it was seaworthy. And on his 43rd birthday, Dick set off from Idaho in a snowstorm, intending to paddle along inland waterways until he reached the Pacific Ocean. He didn't make it. He only made it 350 miles in part because his his beautiful or funny-looking boat that he built for himself breaks. It's made of wood. He's going over like class four rapids. He tumbles off a rock and the bow comes off and it's like irreparable. He's going to sink. Even though we had to abandon ship, Dick was hooked because out there on the water, he experienced the tranquility, the pride and satisfaction, the sense of purpose and meaning that had eluded him for so long. He didn't succeed in the, in the sense of reaching his destination, but he succeeded in sort of flipping the switch on his own experience of life as a frustrated middle-aged man. And one of the things he learned from that, though, in a roundabout way, was that he, he no longer needed to build his own boat. Like, that was kind of wasted effort. Like, from that point on, he always just bought a cheap plastic boat, figuring, like, the less you invest in the boat, the less you have to lose. And it's really more about the experience on the river than the, than the vessel itself anyway. And that experience on the river is one of like profound contentment for him. There's this great passage from one of his journals that, that you quote in the book where he says, life is blooming all around me. I am in my tent and dry as rain falls gently upon my tarp and runs quietly down the Ponderosa bark. Geese are copulating as my canoe sways along the roots on the nearby bank. I'm reading about Chaucer's England in the 14th century. Meanwhile, I'm eating peanuts, pretzels, hot sauce, and Tabasco sauce, drinking beer, and smoking tobacco. I am enjoying good, solid peace at eight in the morning. Yeah, I mean, to me, the kicker in that journal entry for sure is the eight in the morning. Uh, right. Because that's, it's like, yeah, who reads Chaucer at eight in the morning and who drinks beer at eight in the morning and who, like, helps himself to Tabasco sauce while smoking a cigar and drinking beer and reading Chaucer at eight in the morning. It's a little bit like the, you know, the poetry on the back of the Hooters receipt, the, the high-low mix. Yeah. It's so 
pleasing. Um, but yeah, part of what's great about that eight in the morning and the diet that he's describing there is it brings you back to the the kind of the childishness mm-hmm. uh, that's involved in sort of gratifying your whatever ideas you have. Like, you know, you're you're growing up and you're told like, why can't you drink beer at eight in the morning? Well, because because we don't do that. And so if you're gonna if you're gonna cast yourself afloat and go do your own thing, like what better sign of having like really succeeded at setting yourself free than being like, now I can go back to doing it like I can have dessert first or I can just be a silly teenager. And yeah, I mean it's it's I just yeah, uh Chaucer and beer at eight in the morning. I can't I don't think I'd be able to do it myself, but I, I envy anyone who can. Chapter five hard to say goodbye. So Ben had pinpointed Dick's tragic flaw, figured out how he'd overcome it. And now, all he needed was an ending. So let's come back to 2014 and the voyage Dick was on when he met Ben. He'd saved up $7,000, most of it just by socking away social security checks, bought himself a cheap 14-foot canoe at Dick's Sporting Goods, and in June 2014, he put it in the water in Plattsburgh, New York, which is right up near the Canadian border. He was enthusiastic. Dick always seemed enthusiastic when he was getting out on the water. But this time, that enthusiasm was laced with unease. The thing is, he's 63 years old when I met him, and he's not a healthy guy. He had some letters from his doctors warning him that he was sort of at risk of catastrophic diabetes. I think he knew that a heart attack was never that far away. And yeah, he had he had a couple of health episodes on the trip, including when he got through New York Harbor, he was anemic for a little while, and he spent almost 10 days, I think, recuperating in Staten Island. And he was kind of nervous and trepidatious. He just had a, a kind of an unspecified feeling that things might not be as easy this time around as they'd been. I mean, like, you know, he's getting older as he's doing these trips, and it becomes harder and harder. He sent a, an email to his oldest brother, Jim, from Delaware, about a month before his canoe was discovered. It did seem to be kind of pretty aware of mortality. I mean, he was saying, you know, he made a, he'd survived a terrible storm and uh, sort of had a reckoning with his conscience and decided he wanted to mend some rifts in their relationship because he he didn't want to go to his grave without having sort of settled his books. So, you know, I, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't, everything I know about him, I don't really believe that he, that he was suicidal, but I, I do think that he had a sense that, that his time may be drawing near. And he says too, at some point, I think on this journey, He's having a gout flare-up or diabetes, and he says, you know, I have to die of something, and frankly, I wouldn't mind croaking on a trip like this. So, yeah, even if he's not suicidal, maybe it's as if he's reckoning with his mortality and saying, look, if you're going to go to your grave, why not go out doing something that brings you solace? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine if this is the thing that makes you happy and you have a sense that your time is short, well the thing to do is to set yourself afloat and keep going. I mean, Eve, I was even just talking to my father the other day, you know, he loves sailing and um, a good friend of his died a few years ago with whom he used to love going sailing. And he talked about how, you know, that experience of watching his friend die made him think, you know, about how, you know, the way he would want to go maybe would be like, to just like get in a sailboat with a six pack and a, and a tuna sandwich and just sort of like sail away and just until it, didn't go any farther like that there's a sense i think we all often think about like what's what's a good death what's a good way to exit the stage Mm -hmm. 
And there, I, you know, I think my personal feeling is maybe there is no such thing as a good death because then you're gone, but you might as well be doing the thing that makes you feel your purest self. It's interesting too, like maybe he came to terms with, if this is how you're going to go, I want to feel like my purest self. But even in those, what you learned about sort of the, the end of that journey before the trail goes cold, there's this moment where he's spent some days, I think, in Princeton and bonded with some guys at a bar and... He writes in his journal, hard to say goodbye, it always is. I mean, you said earlier that to you, this feels like it's a story about friendship. And it feels like, I don't know, like he's still like, he may have felt solace out on the river, but it was hard to, hard to leave people. And I think that this was a guy who maybe wanted, even, you know, would have loved to keep going and making connections and forging friendships. And I, I don't know, that, that's sort of not really a question or even much of a coherent observation, but. For some reason, that line, man, that just broke my heart. You know, it's hard to say goodbye. It always is. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I admired the most about him was that he never gave up. So, this or that knocks him down. And he's like, but there's always like, and this is, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be too cliched about the river as metaphor, but there's like, there's always another, another town around the bend. There's always something else to see that could be better than however you feel now. And yeah, I mean, so like the last picture that we have of him was taken by a woman in a bookstore in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the owner of the bookstore. She took it, he came in, she was getting ready to close. He comes in on a Saturday night and he was looking for a boating guide for the region that he was about to paddle through. And, you know, as things would happen with him, like they end up talking for two hours and he like, you know, he takes down her name and number and writes it down in his little book and adds it to the list, like another friend, like I'll be, you know, we'll be in touch. You know, he, he was still trying to keep making friends until the end, whatever the end may have been. That's the last known human encounter we can account for. And it's a case of him like adding another friend to his list and writing down her name, her number and how to be in touch with her. And that was eight years ago now? Just about, yeah, no, that, that he met her in the bookstore on November 15 in uh, 2014. And his body's never been recovered, right? Body's never been recovered. No life jacket was ever found. And the other curious thing about it is that his paddle was kind of wrapped up and secured to the gunnel. So when the investigators began kind of trying to figure out what had happened, they just leapt to the assumption fairly naturally, not knowing anything about who they were dealing with, that he must have had a spare, a different paddle, and then that was the spare that was wrapped up on its side. But it, it, I can assure you and your listeners that it wasn't a spare, that was his paddle. He just had the one, and it was always tethered uh, so that he wouldn't lose it. But the fact that it was kind of wrapped up the way it was when they found it does strongly suggest to me that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't paddling when he lost that canoe. It's not like a wave knocked him overboard and then the boat floated away. Because if that's the case, then the paddle would have been at the end of its tether, kind of dangling from the boat instead of tightly wrapped up with all his belongings. You said that when you first met Dick, you had your two-year-old son with you and that your hope was that your son would think like, this is your bedtime story tonight. Like, look at this giant from another land who's wandered into our life and instead your kid was just knocking over chairs. Your son must be ten, eight, eight, ten now? He just turned 10. Yeah, just turned 10 about a week ago. Do you think you wrote this book at all so that he could get that bedtime story? I definitely did. Whether or not it will 
it will work out in the way that I always sort of imagined it would is too hard to say. He tried, he's only read about a chapter of it. I think, you know, he wanted to find it more engaging than he did, maybe when he gets older. I mean, he knows the story. He's been told it many times, but on some level, maybe because he's heard it talked about so much, I don't think he really is able to read it. Well, maybe in a few more years. And then he can move on to books about Chaucer in the 14th century. There you go. Yeah. Ben McGrath, your book, Riverman, is is truly remarkable. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, gosh. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. Our show today was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger. Production assistance from Anna McDonald. Sound design by Jason Freeman. The next big idea is produced in partnership with LinkedIn. And speaking of LinkedIn, if you haven't subscribed to Rufus's newsletter, I totally recommend it. Tons of behind the scenes stuff about this show. Just follow Rufus Griscom on LinkedIn and look for the newsletter called The Next Big Idea. Next week, we'll be speaking with 10-time world record breaker Colin O'Brady. It's going to be a great one. See you then. Hey, one last thing before I go. I want to tell you something I just learned. 81% of people say they wish they could read more, but they just don't have the time. If you're in that 81%, I may have a solution for you. It's the Next Big Idea app. We have partnered with more than 500 of the best nonfiction writers at work today. I'm talking about folks like Walter Isaacson, Anne Lamott, Heather McGee, Adam Grant, Daniel Pink. The list is endless. And we've worked with them to create 15-minute audio summaries where they distill their books down into five big ideas. And because these summaries, we call them book bites, because they're written and read by the authors themselves, you know you're getting the real thing. So if you're a person who struggles to fit reading into your day, I think this might be the answer for you. And accessing this incredible library of book bites could not be easier. All you have to do is go to your app store, search for the next big idea, and download the Next Big Idea app. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download it today. Search for the Next Big Idea in your app store.